Today, as we celebrate Valentine's Day, I want to tell you a little bit about alchemy, the ancient and largely abandoned pseudoscience that tried so hard to turn lead into gold. Over hundreds of years, they tried. Now, you may wonder why I would do such a thing. After all, alchemy, as a science, just didn't work. It just didn't work. So why talk about something that was such a colossal failure? Especially in a congregation filled with real chemists. <laughs> why would I do such a thing? I'm going to be in horrible trouble. Strangely enough, the reason I want to talk about alchemy for a few minutes today is because it has something to say to us about love, and in particular, romantic love. And I agree with Amy 100% that we want to keep in mind those many types of love that feed our hearts. But Valentine's Day is about that romantic kind of love. So, this idea about alchemy having something to do with love, it's so romantic you can hear the music. Kind of. it, just, it just bursts forth from your heart. So this idea comes to us from the writings of Carl Jung, a Swiss psychoanalyst who began his career as a protege of Sigmund Freud. Freud had identified Jung as his successor, as sort of the prince of psychoanalysis. But Jung broke with Freud and he founded a movement called analytic psychology that emphasizes the value of symbolism in myths and in dreams. Uh, if you're acquainted with Joseph Campbell, for example, the great interpreter of mythology in our time, well, if you could picture Joseph Campbell being a psychiatrist, that would sort of be where Jung was. Jung studied the writings and the symbolism of the ancient alchemists because even though they failed so spectacularly at the goal of creating gold out of lead, Jung saw in their symbolism a different kind of gold. He saw that their writings and their drawings were maps of the inner world. Because in their quest to create gold, they did all this real introspection about their minds and their souls and the world around. And Jung saw that they had actually found some truths. But they weren't the truth of how to turn lead into gold. That they had created maps of the psyche. And that in their spiritual searching, they had in fact discovered something. So, unlike almost any sermon I've given, I've actually given you a visual aid this morning, which is in your program which is a series of drawings. So I'm gonna invite you to take a look at these drawings. 
They come from a medieval text on alchemy called the Rosarium Philosophorum. And I'm going to walk us through these drawings this morning. And if you think I'm totally crazy, I'll just tell you, it'll be over soon. You'll be, you'll be moving on to a new part of your life, and you, you won't be damaged in any way, I don't think. All right. Since the alchemists believed that some metals were masculine and some metals were feminine, and they were trying to create one kind of metal out of another. They were very interested in the interaction of masculine and feminine properties. That's how they got onto this. They, that's what they thought about the qualities of metals. So in studying how masculine and feminine related to each other and trying to map out these interactions, at least Jung believed they had inadvertently discovered powerful truths about love, and particularly romantic love. So I'm going to take us for a walk through these old alchemical drawings today. We're going to look at them as charting the course that romantic relationships often take. Not always, but often. And then you can decide for yourself whether this has any value. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that this symbolism uses heterosexual images, and it may seem at first that those images are not as helpful for LGBTQ people. That may be one concern that comes up. And I just want to say that having thought about this for quite a few years, I do believe that this basic model has something to say about all romantic relationships regardless of gender, identity, or sexual orientation. So I do think it is useful to all people in that sense. But of course, you can decide for yourself if that's true. So in the first picture, we're given kind of a model of reality, or at least a model of psychological reality. The sun and the moon symbols suggest that there are both masculine and feminine principles in nature, the sun representing the masculine, the moon representing the feminine. There's a fountain in the picture that suggests there's a supply of water that keeps coming up from someplace deeper. That place that comes up with that water has a pretty uh, typical meaning in Jungian psychology, the water typically represents the unconscious, like the ocean of life. And so the idea of the water coming up through the fountain says that the unconscious is constantly bringing up parts of itself into consciousness. So that's, you have a deep reservoir of the unconscious and things keep coming up just like coming up from this fountain. So we might say that the unconscious is constantly bringing forth its contents, at least some of them, into consciousness, into the world of the opposites like masculine and feminine and life and death and all other kinds of interactions as well. So that's, that's the world we live in. Um, it may be that you might not think there is an unconscious and we have to, we're gonna have to go down to Panera's on that one and talk about it. But we certainly do have dreams. That's one place we could start. Picture two depicts the beginning of a relationship. Maybe it's like a date. 
It's like a first date. Note that they're dressed up very nicely. And they go somewhere and they meet each other. And the two strangers' eyes lock on each other. This is like that moment that was in the first poem I read. I looked at you and something happened. And it's like, bzzz. And this is, by the way, created in movie scenes all the time. Just go to the movies and, and you see this moment, you know, one's on one side of the bar and another one's on the other side of the bar and they look over and the camera zooms in and it's like, something happens. Um, Jung believed that all of us carry inside our unconscious an image of our ideal partner. Now Jung called this ideal image the anima for a man and the animus for a woman. So it's our ideal partner. A more recent writer named Harville Hendricks calls this the imago. And I like that better because it degenderizes it. So all it says is that within each of us, psychologically in the unconscious, there is an image of what our ideal partner would be. Where do these images come from? Well, partly come from parents, partly from cultural stereotypes. I mean, movie stars, movie images, uh, stories that we know well. It's our ideal love partner. And when we meet someone who seems to match that unconscious image, then something powerful takes place. And we, we're just like, oh my goodness. In psychological terms, we would say that we project onto that person the image of our ideal dream lover. So we unconsciously say, that is the one. That is it. Again, go watch three or four movies and just, you know, this just happens over and over again. And we change and something happens to us. And we go into a kind of giddy state. And if this happens to the other person as well, that they project their inner image onto us, then you have a double projection. And that double projection is powerful. And it has various names. One of them is called falling in love. That's one of the names. Some writers call that infatuation. But it's a powerful event that takes place. We might say something like, I feel like I have known you my whole life. You see, and actually that's true. Because we have known that inner image our whole life. And so if we project that onto another person, then we do have that experience with the other person that we've known that person our entire life because that we're experiencing them as our inner imago. Picture three. We see a symbolic representation of what we would call self-disclosing, where the two partners start to disclose themselves to each other. I've heard this referred to, I think in some teen magazine somewhere, as the talking stage. You talk, 
And you share everything and you tell the other person your life story and you share hidden parts of yourself that you ordinarily keep secret. In this case, symbolized by the removing of their clothes, they're disclosing themselves to each other. And they start acting in ways that they wouldn't dream of acting usually. There's a, there's a lowering of the usual defenses that keep the unconscious under control. And so we have introverts who go sing at the karaoke bar, which they would never do. Or macho guys who go to poetry readings, which they would never do. But there's this burst of energy and, and optimism and, and this experience of being in love. In picture four, we see the lovers in a bath. Or I'm thinking it's kind of a medieval hot tub. They are partly in the water and partly out of the water. So if we take the water as being the unconscious mind, we could say that at this point, their relationship is partly conscious and partly unconscious. They have both levels of relationship. People in this stage say things like, I can't live without you, which means uh, that they also say things like, I will love you forever, which is never a statement about chronological time. It's a statement about intensity. And it's this feeling, and it's this state of being uh, almost melded together, which is in fact what has happened unconsciously. These unconscious forces are, are strong, they're so strong that we may feel that we have no identity outside this relationship. My life is empty without you, dear. I wouldn't even have a life without you, as one song says it. That's a very strong statement about how powerful these unconscious forces are. In picture five, the lovers reach a culminating point in their relationship. The, the alchemical drawing shows it as a sexual union, but psychologically it's, psychologically it's probably more like a wedding or a declaration of commitment. The partners declare that they are one in some way that's recognizable. We are going to be one. And we say that in wedding services all the time. That's, that's a very common, the lighting of the <coughs> unity candle, there are all different ways of symbolizing that making that statement that our lives are joined into one life and in the drawings from now on they are going to be pictured as one person. They'll no longer be two people, they'll be one person. So if you turn it over and look at number six, we see the couple, they're joined together as one, but a death has taken place. They're in the tomb. Why would a death take place? They just have been the happiest people in the world. One possible explanation is that the ego or the individuality of each partner, our separate sense of self, which we also all have, that ego has been overthrown by the love 
by becoming one with another. So the separate individual self feels overthrown in this situation and it will start, that individuality will start reasserting itself because it doesn't want to be uh, taken out of the picture. So part of it is the resurgence of the ego. But another powerful part of this is that there is an inevitable realization at some point that the person that we have partnered with in this way is not, in fact, the ideal perfect partner. That realization begins to dawn over time. And so we just, we, I mean, lots of things might happen to bring on that, but there's a realization that that person is actually not my inner dream, but is actually a human being. And that human being has qualities that don't match up perfectly with my inner image. But it turns out that in fact, we have partnered with a very imperfect and at times downright irritating person. I'm not suggesting that you have had this experience. I'm only, I'm only talking theoretically. And so this is an enormous disappointment to both partners to find out that they did not in fact marry Prince Charming or Sleeping Beauty, but they married a person or they partnered with a person. And the illusion is shattered and the egos are reasserted. The individuality of the partners is reasserted. And this perfect pinnacle of love is very likely lost. And so what happens next is often a battle of disappointed and upset egos, each trying to get the other to do what they want. And those are in the movies too, by the way. That's that center part of the romantic movie where they get upset with each other and they split off and they go off. And often you see one of those things where it's one of those time passes, you know, scenarios and they go here and there and they go to the coffee shop and they cry and stuff. <laughs> and I don't mean to trivialize this, this is not. Now at this point, when the illusion has been shattered and the the initial uh, love has died, at this point there may be a breakup. Quite likely there's a breakup. And if there is a breakup at this point, then each one of the partners goes into a period of grief after which they recover and then they go back to picture number two and start with the next meeting, hopefully, in the bar or in the maybe at a church potluck. <laughs> but maybe they don't break up. Maybe they don't break up. Uh, in, a tr in, in the great classic romantic movies, they don't break up. They, they could fall apart, but then more happens. By the way, if they do break up and they go back to picture number two and start again, this process might repeat itself many, many times. It might be a kind of a loop that we fall in love, uh, the image gets shattered, and we are deeply disappointed, and we go back, and we grieve, and then try it again. 
In picture seven, we see a picture of a figure leaving the body, this, the, the body of the couple. And this image means, at least in Jung's view, is that the dream partner or the imago in each partner has broken its projection. So we projected our perfect person onto, now we're going to withdraw that projection because it's turned out that's not true anymore. And so that inner lover wants to go somewhere else. And so that's the point at which there might be an affair or there might be the temptation of an affair or it could be uh, a new career. It could be some new interest in life or taking up painting or just something else that one becomes passionate about. So that inner energy will go somewhere else. It is no longer true that my life is empty without you, babe. It's actually just the other way around. My life is empty with you, babe. And I need to fill that emptiness somewhere else. And so that, that often takes place. And again, the partners may break up this time, but if they choose to stay together, even though the power of the original projection is broken, then something altogether different may happen if they decide to stay together. In picture eight, we see the partners still together. They're still in the tomb. Their relationship is still in this death state, but we see these drops falling from a cloud overhead. Now these dewdrops actually refer to the story of Gideon in the Bible, where God sends the dewdrops to fall on Gideon to show Gideon that he is real. But symbolically, what this picture means is that if the partners stay together, even though the projection is broken, and they do their own spiritual work, of understanding their relationship and understanding themselves better and coming to terms with the deep issues they have in themselves and between each other, maybe through counseling or maybe through just genuine heartfelt communication. If they do that, they will experience healing. And this healing is uh, shown in the picture of the dew drops coming down from this source of healing and bringing them little by little, drop by drop, maybe tier by tier, new insights and new wisdom as they undergo their own self-exploration, find out who they really are and who their partner really is. If the partners have the courage and the perseverance to go through this kind of self-examination of their relationship, then the drawings in number nine say that something new will be reborn. Something will be reborn. The picture uh, shows a bird by the tomb and the bird represents some new life taking place as a result of this healing process that they're going through. The bird says that there's new life coming back. They're waking up from the tomb, a new kind of relationship. 
is going to be possible between them because they're no longer uh, living in an illusion. They're now matured people. They have done their own spiritual work. They've communicated with their partner. They've done everything to try to understand what happened to them and why their relationship died. And if they do that work, new life will come to them. And in picture 10, we see the lovers emerge from the tomb. They are now integrated human beings. They have grown up. They have matured. They are both male and female. They've integrated the deeper parts of themselves that are represented by the snake and the creature with the three heads. And they will bear fruit. They will become people who can accomplish things. The fruit is symbolized by the tree. It may be children, but it may be accomplishments. It may be projects that they can do together. It may be service that they can do to the world. And now, for the first time, they are able to see each other, but not through the projection of their inner desires. They see each other as real people, not as projections. They are actually free for the first time to really love each other as they are, with clear eyes. They become powerful people and they enhance the quality of life in the world. They experience a new level of love. I don't know how much of yourself or your life or lots of movies you may see in these images. I would encourage you to look at romantic movies differently now. But I will leave that all up to you to decide. What I personally find fascinating about these images that the old alchemists came up with Images that were created for a totally different purpose than what we're talking about this morning is that these old seekers seem to have discovered something that they never suspected they were doing. They discovered that there is some kind of direction in all of our searching and getting our hearts broken and loving, and maybe getting our hearts broken again, there is something in all that searching and all that difficult life that is part of a larger picture. It's part of a journey that may not lead to a literal pot of gold, and it may not lead to even a perfect partnership on in normal life, but what it does lead to is our own true selves and a sense of self-discovery and self-understanding and a deeper and more genuine ability to love someone. May we all be encouraged on our journeys and not give up hope for love, for love is actually within us and surrounding us all the time in its many, many forms. 
May our paths lead us in that experience, which is most truly healing and real.